so glad you guys can make it. Everybody awake? It's great to have you guys here this morning. I want to um, thank you for making it and risking your life to come to church this morning on a, on a snowy Sunday morning. Uh, I also just want to share a, a couple of announcements with you. We have a, a lot of opportunities coming up to serve. Uh, we'll be serving at Catholic Charities still this month. Uh, the date is there in your bulletin. We encourage you to uh, participate in that. It's a great opportunity to share the love of Christ. We were children in need yesterday and uh, served lots and lots of families, dozens of families, um, uh, supplies and much-needed food and groceries uh, to help them through the winter. And so it's a great opportunity that the church has uh, and our church has each month a few times a month to go out and to show the love of God in very practical ways. We believe, we believe that the love of God is best when it's not only proclaimed, but it's also demonstrated. And so that's the reason that we do some of those things and serve our community. Uh, we also have um, a Covenant Partner class coming up at the end of the month. Uh, if you have been attending for a little while and you're wanting to learn more about Emmaus Road and, and thinking that you're ready to take that step of Covenant Partnership, which is our membership program, uh, we encourage you to come to that class. It's on a Sunday afternoon afternoon from 2 to 4. The date is there in your bulletin. And uh, don't worry uh, about coming to class. It's not any kind of commitment. Uh, You're not agreeing to become a covenant partner. It is strictly an informational class uh, for you to learn a little bit more about our church and what we're all about and uh, what it means to be a covenant partner. So we encourage you to to join us there. Uh, Sign up is required. So we encourage you to sign up in the coming weeks in the Welcome Center uh, so that we can have a good idea of uh, how many people are going to be there. So there's lots of other things in your bulletin, I encourage you to uh, take a look and pay attention to those, and uh, so you can be in, be involved in the life of the church uh, as you would want. So, uh, we are now in the second and final week of a series that we're calling Unleash. And the purpose of Unleash is to uh, unleash our generosity in the first part of the year. Uh, we, we, I just really felt like that as we come into a brand new year and we're setting goals uh, and those kinds of things and we're setting those resolutions, well, what a great resolution to become more generous and more accurately reflect the generous love of God uh, to those people around us. So we're giving some practical tools uh, to unleash generosity in our lives. Uh, now last week we... Uh, um, we looked at First Timothy and Paul speaking and writing to Timothy, who is um, sort of his protege in ministry. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I, I wanted to, to, as way of a review, but almost as a way of, of uh, an addendum to the message last week, I wanted to say this. As I, I was, uh, as I was thinking about that this week, I realized that really at the heart of contentment and what it means to be content, not only with where we're at financially, but where we're at in this season of our lives, is at the heart of this contentment is a trust and a hope In Jesus Christ, him who is resurrected, placing fully my trust in him, that he loves me, that he knows what's going on, that there are no surprises in in this life, and, and he's not surprised at where I find myself right now. So placing our trust in God, and then also placing our hope in him, in who not only died for us, but was resurrected. That if we can if we can learn this measure of trust and hope in Jesus Christ and him resurrected, we will find ourselves much more likely to be content 
where we're at. So Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, you know, if, I, if you are one that finds yourself discontent a lot of the time or most of the time, uh, I would say to you that chances are you are having a hard time placing your trust in a God who loves you and placing your hope in him who is resurrected rather than either in the quality of my circumstances or as we're talking about in this series, the bottom line of my checkbook, right? A lot of times our our hope and our trust gets stolen by uh, my circumstances, either good or bad, or the bottom line of my checkbook and I find myself placing my hope in there. Okay, so godliness with contentment is great gain. So he calls those in light of this truth. He calls those who are rich to be rich in generosity and to give generously. And in doing so, Paul says in 1 Timothy, uh, that we will, do, we will lay a foundation of the coming age. That is to say that in the coming age, when God um, reconciles all of us fully and finally to himself and the world to himself, when all of this is, all of the brokenness in the world is made brand new, we will find ourselves truly and finally putting our full hope in him who is resurrected. There will be no misplaced hope in the coming age when at the renewal of all things. And so, Paul says, by giving generously, we are actually practicing Oh, right now for the future. We are living in such a way right now that we are anticipating the future that is to come. Does that make sense? And we talked about that last week. Now, where we finally landed is that in order to be generous, in order, a great starting point for that, a great starting point of obedience and generosity in our lives is to tithe according to the biblical tithe. And by t- giving away 10% of our income to the church, we are, every time we write that check, every time we fill out that envelope and give that cash, we are becoming more and more like him who created us and has given Jesus Christ for us. At the heart of who God is, he is a giver. And so when we give generously and according to the, the, the what is outlined in scripture in the biblical tithe, we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so we, we gave you this practical tip that if you don't know where to start, uh, start with the biblical tithe. And, and I went so far as to say that generosity will never be unleashed in our life unless we start practicing the tithe. That the tithe is not only a great first step, but a necessary first step to really unleashing generosity in our lives. Um, And and so um, the tendency for us is, is to not tithe, but to tip. Right, and and we 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 tip uh, the work of God and the kingdom of God, and we feel really good about ourselves about being generous. Uh, but I would argue that this radical generosity starts in our lives through the tithe. So I want to talk about today this sort of um, how do we go even further, and, and not only what is the biblical perspective of that, but again, what are some practical steps that we can begin that. So I want to talk today about a peculiar generosity. Uh, do you guys remember a few weeks back we said that in, the, in our Christian lives there ought to be something peculiar about our lives. There ought to be, uh, the, as we live in accordance with the kingdom of God, there, there ought to be this peculiarity uh, about our lives. So I want to talk today about a peculiar Generosity. All right. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a fascinating verse, uh, set of verses that I want to look at and, and unpack a little bit today. And I think it's uh, going to be of great benefit to us. So 
Uh, let's read this together. It'll be up on the screens. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through four. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. This is his second letter, and he says this. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. For out of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now, before we can even begin to unpack this, there are some questions that have to be answered, right? The first question is, who in the world are the Macedonians? And the second question is, why is Paul writing to the the Corinthians, the the church in Corinth, about the Macedonians and their generosity, right? So in order to help us understand what's happening here, I want to do some good old-fashioned Bible study, and I want to show you a map. Um, So give me just a second, and I will bring it up here. So here's a map, and you can't see it very well, um, but this is the Roman Mediterranean, or what would be called the Roman Empire, uh, about the time that this, uh, this letter is written. And um, in Acts chapter 1, if we look back there, in Acts chapter 1, uh, what we find is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected, he's ascended into heaven, and he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem, uh, for I am going to give you a gift. Now we know from Acts chapter 1 and 2 that that gift is in fact the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the, if we were to call this, this gathering of believers uh, the church, then the church begins in, in Jerusalem in Acts the first couple chapters, right? So in Acts chapter 1, we have the church, the gathering of believers that begins begins in Jerusalem. Some of you are like, this seems like a totally different message from, the, from what we just set up. Trust me, we'll get there and we'll connect the dots. So there is Jerusalem on the map. Uh, that is where everything starts. That's where the church, the gathering of believers for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel begins. Now, turn with me over to Acts chapter 11, if you would like. I'll also read it. And we're going to look at verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Says this. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, Stephen is the first Christian martyred for his faith. So, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling the good news about. Jesus Christ. And so what happens is that this group of believers, because of persecution, is spread up. Some of the believers head up the coast and they land in Antioch. And it's told, this message is told first to the Greeks, but it also, for, to the Jews, but it also goes to the Greeks. So already, in the very first days of the church, this message, this message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is beginning to cross cultural boundaries. It's not staying just within one tribe or one set of customs, but it's already beginning to to spread and cross cultural boundaries, right? Uh, And and we're going to trace a little bit here the growth of the church. Turn over to Acts chapter 13, verse, verse 13 as well. 
Acts 13, 13. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions uh, sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where they handed out pamphlets. Just seeing if you're awake, right? Okay, so they go from Paphos here, and then they go to uh, Perga in Pamphylia. So uh, there's Salamis, and then Paphos, and then Perga. So already this message of Jesus Christ and the people that are following uh, this message in Jesus, the resurrected Christ, are beginning to spread. The message is spreading. Okay, so Acts chapter 13, 13 goes from Paphos to Perga, Perga then to Pisidian Antioch. If we keep reading from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, which is up here. So already the message is beginning to spread and spread and spread. Now verse 14 Sorry, not verse 14, chapter 14, uh, verses 21 through 23. The church and the message just keeps going. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra. And so they've been to Lystra, which is uh, right there, down a little bit, right next to Iconium. Okay. Now, what happens is, is that the message just keeps on spreading. In fact, it is in the very nature of the message of Jesus Christ that it wants to spread. And in fact, God desires this message to spread. And we see this very early on in the life of the church. And it goes beyond the tribe. It goes beyond customs that have tried to hem the message in. It has crossed boundaries from where it started. And the message, in other words, cannot simply be contained by customs. In other words, it cannot be contained by a people that dress a certain way, practice certain things, eat certain kinds of foods, or listen to certain kinds of music. <laughs> right? We're catching on to this. And what's happening? So what happens is that it, it, it is, goes beyond that. It is in the nature of the message of the resurrected Jesus Christ to transcend these cultural customs and goes beyond and reaches people who may not dress like us, eat what we eat, have the sorts of practices, or even listen to the kinds of music that we like. I wonder if it is in the very nature of the message of Jesus Christ to spread, I wonder how many times we have tried to hem the message in in the name of our custom or our traditions. But it is in the nature of the message that it desires to spread and the message transcends those things by which we try to hem it in. Now, Let's turn over to 17, Acts 17, verse 1. Then they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. So Thessalonica is the long line from Lystra over to Thessalonica. Uh, And then in verse 16 of that same chapter, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, And so it also, this gospel ends up in Athens. By now, by the time that we get to Thessalonica, we are miles and miles and miles away from where this message began in Jerusalem. Are you with me? These churches in the north, Athens, Thessalonica, Philippi, that is in an area called Macedonia. So churches in that area are the Macedonian churches. Now, 
Turn over to me to Acts chapter 20. I want to read verse 24. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. The question becomes, why are we doing this? And it says, Paul says, However, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Hey, why are we taking this message of Jesus Christ all these places? Why are we taking it from Jerusalem to miles and miles and miles away? Well, we're testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's what the church is all about. Hey, hey, what's your church about? Oh, my church is about testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? What's your church about? Oh, well, my church is about making sure everybody's happy. Or, or, or my church is, is um, my church is about having the, the the really the really best music, no matter what. Or, or, or my church is about the pastor. Or, my church is about how much money we can raise and how nice our building could be. No, 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 no. The church is about testifying to the good news of God's grace. Why are we doing this? Why are we taking the message miles and miles and miles? Well, we're doing it in order to testify to the good news of God's grace. That's why we're doing this thing. It's because God has fully and finally revealed himself and made his grace known and available to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what the church is all about. Now, while all this message is spreading, that's the end of my little map here. So we got a, we got a feel for the growth of the church. Now, these aren't all the plotting points of the growth of the church. I mean, obviously, Corinth, which, which is uh, in Ephesus is on here, Ephesians, right? So there are certain cities that we have letters from, that, the growth. But that's, a, that's at least an idea of what's happening. So why are we doing this? And, and, and what's happening? And, and while all, we're, we're testifying to the goodness of God's grace, and, and, and while this message is spreading and going miles and miles and miles away from the place that it began, what happened back where it all started in Jerusalem is they're starting to experience extreme persecution famine, and all kinds of hard times. And so Paul and his missionary buddies, they decide that it's going to be, that, that as they're going around to these different churches and they're traveling back and forth, it would be to the advantage of the folks in Jerusalem to begin taking an offering. And so they say, while we're going to these churches, we might as well just take up a collection. because, And we should tell them, you know, you wouldn't exist if, if this place where it all started didn't exist, right? So, so we ought to help out the place where this all started. And our, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are struggling. And so could you, could you give some money to help them out in the midst of famine and persecution? And so they decide to take an offering. Now, what happened, though, is that those northern churches in Macedonia, they weren't asked to be a part of the offering. Because they were so poor. How do you ask people that live in extreme poverty for money? You don't, right? I mean, it's either... either offensive or at very best it's awkward because you know that they cannot afford 
anything extra. I mean, they're having a hard time just getting by on their own. So they don't ask the Macedonian churches to participate in the offering. But meanwhile, the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth says, yeah, we want to be a part of this. We want to, we want to participate in the collection. We want to help out our friends and our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so we're going to be a part of the, we're going to take part in the offering. But at the time that this letter in back to second Corinthians eight, at the time of Paul's writing in this letter, they have committed to giving some money and being a part of the collection, but no money has been actually collected, which never happens in our world, right? We never pledge to give money and then never follow through. That never happens. You guys with me, right? And, and so, this, so Paul is in this kind of tricky relational waters because as he's traveling around, he has just been from Macedonia. He has collected this, this money, which they begged to be a part of, and we'll, take, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then he's headed back through Corinth on his way back to Jerusalem. And he actually has some folks from the Macedonian churches with him. And so Paul has to decide, how am I going to tell the church in Corinth who has money and has agreed to take part in the offering, just hasn't collected anything. How am I going to tell them about all the churches and all the money that the Macedonian churches have given? This is going to be weird. So Paul finds himself in these kind of relational, this relational sticky waters. Because how do you go to a group that said they would participate but haven't gathered any money? And, ha- and while you're coming through town, you have the money that these poor churches have, have gathered, right? That is awkward for everybody. You understand what I'm saying? Right? So Paul is in some really tricky waters that he has to navigate. And so what he does is he actually tells the Corinthians a story. Because stories are so powerful in our lives. He tells them a story. And the story goes like this. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Because out of the most severe trial... Their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty has welled up in generosity. For I testify that they gave what they were able and even beyond their ability and entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. That's a pretty powerful story. That Paul tells the Corinthians. Now notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul does not say to the Corinthians, uh, you better get that money that you collected um, or you're going to be like a bunch of chumps. You're going to look like a bunch of chumps when the, when the poor Macedonians come through town and they've collected money. It's going to make you all look bad. Paul doesn't say that, does he? Or he says, he doesn't say, you tightwad Corinthians, Go ahead and give your pledge, right? He doesn't, he doesn't pound his authority on them either. He, 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 no, he, he just simply tells them a story. And he says, let me tell you about the grace that God has given the Mas- Macedonians. Um, in other words, he tells them a story and he frames it with God's grace. And to explain the Macedonians' giving, he talks about the Macedonians' receiving 
This is profound stuff that Paul is doing. He, he does not just talk about their giving. He talks about their giving in light of what they have already received. He says, because of God's grace, the Macedonians pleaded to be a part of the offering for God's people in Jerusalem. And having received God's grace, they were compelled to give despite their extreme poverty. And that is a peculiar generosity. Now, I want to make an interesting point and observation. With, with how far, miles and miles and miles away, that Macedonia is from Jerusalem, do you think in the ancient world that those churches and the folks in that churches knew or even had friends in Jerusalem? No. In the ancient world where folks stayed really close to home for the most part, the Macedonian churches probably and most likely had never even met the church that was struggling in Jerusalem. And yet, after receiving God's grace, they were compelled to give generously to this church. So built into the churches, capital C, churches, earliest days is this generosity to people hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away whom they have never even met. Can anyone say Advent conspiracy? Right? In the earliest days of the church, they were giving away to people across the world that they had never even met. In other words, generosity to people across the world was not Oprah's idea or Brangelina's. Right? It wasn't their idea. It's God's idea for his established people to take care of themselves and to take care of others across the world. Which is why we participate in Advent Conspiracy. Which is why we support with our denomination the, the, the work of missionaries around the world. Because we may, have, we may never have the opportunity to meet them. But because we have received so much we are compelled to give. Now, let's explore the implications of this, this kind of peculiar generosity from this Macedonian churches. Let's explore that a little bit. Uh, first implication of this is uh, very, very practical and very real life kind of stuff. How many of you have ever received in your whole life at one point a fundraising letter? Yes, all of us. How many of you uh, at some point, maybe sometime in your life, maybe once a year receive a fundraising letter? No one on this side, okay, right? I mean, fundraising letters and, and opportunities to give come to us all the time. Do you agree, right? And so there's this, there's this battle that I face and probably many of you face as you hear about all these really great causes. How am I supposed to navigate the waters of all these opportunities to give, but I don't have the money to give, how am I supposed to navigate those waters? Well, the question comes up, should I give to everyone just a little bit? Should I give to no one? Or should I listen to what Paul says in this passage in order to help us frame and to help us discern? What Paul, Paul frames it in this way, he says, God has given a 
grace to the Macedonian churches. He has placed in them a passion and a desire to help out their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so I would say to you, as you navigate the waters of all these really great opportunities to give, of which one is Advent Conspiracy and all those other fundraising things and, and, and parachurch organizations, one great way to navigate that is, has God given you a grace for that? Has God placed in your heart a passion and a desire to help those things, to help those causes out? How many of you, um, when you hear of a really great, you see a video or you hear a call or a commercial and, uh, to help someone, and you're like, man, that is really great. I am so glad someone is doing that. And then sometimes you hear that same thing. Uh, you hear this call, this commercial, this an invitation to give, and you say, oh, count me in. I can't help but be a part of that. What grace has God given you to give? Now, if we are on the asking side, this also frees us up quite a bit, right? Because if we have this cause that we're passionate about, we're giving so much time and energy and, and all these kinds of things, and we're, we're, we're giving ourselves to this cause, and yet we find ourselves that in other people that they're not equal to our passion. They don't equal our passion for, for this very cause. We sometimes get really frustrated, right? Have you been there? Why won't they care about this as much as I do? Or why don't they care about this? Or they aren't Christian because they don't care about it as much as I do, Right? I mean, it's easy to think and, and become frustrated and to blame folks who aren't as passionate about certain things as we are, right? This frees us up to realize maybe God hasn't given them a grace for that. And so this frees us up. And it's okay because God has given you a grace and passion and you will meet people that God has given that same passion to, but you will also find other people that don't have the same passion. And through all of our graces that God has given to us, there are many good works going on in the world for the cause of the kingdom of God. Amen? And what I would want to say to you is that this is the offering. There seems to be this, this distinction in Scripture between what is called the tithe and what is called the offering. And so in the Old Testament, as part of the law, the Israelites, the people of God, are given a command that they are to give the very first split of 10% of their income, which probably came most likely in the form of a grain. They are to give that to the local storehouse. That's what God was teaching. He, was, he, was, he made it part of the law in order to form our hearts more into people of generosity. And so he tells the people of God, you've got to give 10% of your income to the local storehouse. The storehouse was the place where they kept all of this tithe coming in so that the whole community might be fed. It was this kind of distribution center for the community. It's in Genesis 41 when uh, Joshua uh, takes away this grain and, and is gathering offering for the coming famine. He builds a storehouse so that all of Egypt might be, might be properly fed during the seven-year famine. It's the distribution center for the community. Now, in a New Testament age, we have, many theologians have rightly understood the local church to be the storehouse. That as God's people, we are to take 10% of our income and give it first to the local church so that the local church can be empowered to 
go and do the, community, the, the work of the kingdom of God in the world and in that community. After all, that is where you are getting fed and taught and given guidance and encouragement and provided with community and all of these things. Isn't that a great place to give and participate in the kingdom of God? Is through the local church, the established, God-given organization that God has set up to go about and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want to, if you want, in my view, the very first way and point of giving is to tithe to the local church. But we also have this idea of the offering. Now that's what happens in the Old Testament. And some people would say, what about the New Testament? Because we're in the age of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the tithe is not mentioned much. And I, my guess and my feeling is that if the New Testament said, yeah, 10%, you should do that. Um, people would be like, yeah, okay, I will. And they wouldn't have any trouble with it. But the New Testament does not simply just say, only tithe. The New Testament calls us to a radical generosity. So in the Old Testament, we have this, this, this teaching, this habit. Let's begin with 10%. This is according to the law. And then the, when we come to finances in the New Testament, Jesus talked about money more than anything second to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So, so for me, I know that this may be uncomfortable to talk about unleash and to talk about money and all these kinds of things, but if for me... As a pastor, if I don't talk about our finances and, and, and how we are to invest in the kingdom of God, I am guilty of malpractice in ministry because Jesus talked about it all the time. And I, my guess would be is that if Jesus had just said, yeah, yeah, give 10%, we'd all be pretty comfortable with that. But when we come to the New Testament, we get a sense that, that Jesus is calling us to a radical and peculiar generosity. He talks, about, um, he talks about making sure that all that we have is given over to him. He talks about making sure that we have the perspective that everything that we receive is a gift from him. And that we are called to be managers, or the biblical term is stewards of what God has given to us, right? And so he doesn't say, yeah, yeah, it's your money and just give 10%. He says, "Uh uh-uh, it's all coming from me and it is your job to properly disperse your wealth according to the kingdom of God. And some of that's going to be giving it away. Some of that, of course, is going to be going to to pay bills and do all the things that we have to do. But what Jesus calls us to is not simply giving 10% of your money. What Jesus calls us to is to realize that it's all his money and we are to manage it well according to the kingdom of God. So some of it we're going to give away. Some of it we're going to spend in other ways, but all of it is going to be in a way that honors him and is, is in accordance with the kingdom of God. And so we would be much more comfortable if the Bible said, give 10% of your money. But the Bible calls us to a radical, radical generosity of tithing and offering where all that we have is a gift from him and we use it all to honor him and his kingdom. Now, there's even more 
Well, let, let me say this. Again, my goal in, in this message in this series is not to induce you with guilt. My goal in my heart is not to even say, you know, this church really needs your money, so please give. My goal is to teach you what Scripture says about your finances. And if you find yourself angry at me right now, it may very well be the Holy Spirit convicting you. I'm just saying. And my goal is to allow your heart to be transformed so you can move toward a radical generosity and give you steps to get there. That's my heart, and that's my goal. Now, there's a lot more going on here, and let's talk about that in this passage. A couple more observations. It says, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. You don't very often find the words overwhelming joy and extreme poverty in the same sentence or talking about the same people, right? You guys with me? I don't know about you, but when I feel uh, impoverished, I don't feel very joyful. But Paul says, and these folks in Macedonia are so peculiar that he can say about them, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And so what in the world is going on here? And how can Paul say that about this group of people? Well, it tells me two things. The first is being rich and being poor is not connected to our income. Being rich and being poor is not connected to our income. You can have no money but be rich with generosity as the Macedonians were. And you can also have lots and lots of money, but be very, very poor in generosity. And, and so this idea that, that being rich and being poor are in no way connected to our financial income. There is a deeper trust available in Christ and there is a deeper hope available in in Christ. And this passage also shows me that money and joy are two very different things. Their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Do you remember um, kind of our, our, our New Year's uh, theme for, that, we, that we talked about last week? This passage points to this. Uh, in such a deep and profound way. Our our New Year's theme last week that we came up with was, in the new year, my joy will not be determined by my finances. And that is such a powerful word that some of us need to hear. And I believe it comes out so clearly in this passage. Their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty. My joy will not be determined by my finances, because generosity comes from a properly placed hope and a properly placed joy and a good dose of perspective. <laughs> generosity comes from properly placed hope, properly placed joy, and a good dose of perspective. Because you can have very little money, but be rich. You can live in poverty, but be generous. Generosity is not connected to my income. A lot of times I hear people say, you know, when I have more money, I'm going to start giving. I'm going to start tithing. Just as soon as I get over this hump, I'm going to start doing it. And while I do not want to diminish the difficulty of your financial situation, I do want to say this. It will become much harder, not easier, 
to give when your paycheck gets bigger. You, you're making 200 bucks, 300 bucks a week right now, and you're trying to, you, you know, you're thinking, there's no way I can write a check for that much. What is going to happen when your paycheck is $1,000 a week? Two or $300 a week. If you're making two or $300 a, a month, then you are very in difficult circumstances, and we can help you out if you need to. You know, we'll do our best. So you're making two or 300 bucks a week, and you're saying, man, it's really hard to give. What happens when that paycheck gets $1,000 a week or $2,000 a week? Trust me, it will not be easier. It will be much, much harder because this generosity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Scripture also says that God loves a cheerful giver. Why does he say that? Because giving is a matter of the heart. And so my goal in this series is for your heart to be changed. I don't want to just lay guilt on you so you give for a month or two and then stop. I want the Holy Spirit of God to intersect your life and change your heart and so, so that you will become welled up in generosity despite what you may be going through or what you will go through in 2011. And I hope you also know that generosity is not just in relation to our finances. Right? These things are not just connected to our finances. So giving is truly a matter of the heart. Now Paul also says, they gave even beyond their ability. Which is a, uh, is a way of saying they gave what they were able and then they were gave even more. It's Paul essentially saying, these poor churches gave more than I ever expected them to. And now i got to go tell the Corinthians about how the, the poor Macedonian churches gave richly and even beyond what they were able. Um, you know, the Bible, the Bible is full of broken, messed up folks doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit and a changed heart. And that's precisely what's going on here. These Macedonians, they're poor, they're normal, they're messed up folks, just like you and I. And yet, through a transformed heart, and the empowerment of God in their life, they did something extraordinary. A lot of times Christianity is kind of formed in terms of if we just, if we just see how awful we are and how awesome Jesus is, we'll come to know the gospel. And, but the Bible is full of these people, these normal broken people doing extraordinary things through the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, and the transformed heart in their lives. And that's what's going on here. In this this poverty-stricken church, and these churches are given a grace of God and and are able to give beyond their own ability. You know what this tells me? You and I are capable of far more than we realize. You are far more capable than you realize through the work of God in your heart 
if, you, if your heart is given over to him. He can work through you in ways you cannot even imagine. Because the Bible is full of people just like you and I. That God has transformed their hearts. He's taken a hold of their life. And he does something extraordinary through them. So this passage tells me that we, you and I can do far more than we think we're capable of. And we can also give and reach a level of generosity beyond what we ever imagined. Beyond what we ever imagined. You and I can be more generous than we ever thought possible. So as we move kind of into this new year and into 2011, I would call us to these foundational things. A properly placed joy in, the, in Jesus Christ. A properly placed hope in the resurrection. So that in this new year, in 2011, it can be said of us, in the midst of their severe trial that you will face this year, their overflowing joy, because my joy is not dependent on my finances or my circumstances, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That is my goal, not only for myself, but for all of us this year. That despite the severe trial, their overwhelming joy, and their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. Maybe you're here this morning and and you are tithing, and you're a regular giver. And um, I I wonder if, if this year... 2011, God might be calling you to say, I can do so much more through you if you would open up the the floodgates of generosity in your life. There is no limit to what can be accomplished and the blessing that can be had for this church, for other ministries, for people, if you would fully surrender your generosity and your finances and your your, your checkbook to me. Maybe that's you this morning. You're obedient to that 10%, and God is saying, I want to take you even further. Maybe this morning you are uh, a tipper, and you, tip a, you give a little bit here, and a little bit over there, and a little bit over there, and um, God is, is saying to you this morning, in 2011, I want you to form the regular and habitual uh, giving that I have called you to, because if you do that, then I'm going to take you to a next level. But until that habit of generosity is there, I, I, I can never take you there. And so God is saying, I want you to move from, from this, this sporadic giving. And I want you to, to begin getting on a regular, habitual giving habit um, that's going to help take you to the next level. And maybe, maybe you're not either one of those and, and you live your life with a closed hand. And I believe that God may be saying to those of you that, that live in this closed-handed hand, sort of way, that, that God is just saying there is a far greater hope available to you than what is in your hand. There is a far greater trust. There's a far greater security. Than, and there's a far greater joy than what lies in what you have in your hand. And he's inviting you simply to just open that up. And watch your trust and your hope 
be properly placed fully in him and not in that which I own or have or possess. There's a greater hope and a greater joy, and it is Jesus Christ. We're going to respond to God together. Um, The communion elements are available to you if you'd like to respond in that way. And, And communion at its at its heart, or at least part of communion, is remembering the rich generosity of God in our lives, who has given His Son to die and be resurrected for us, that we may have life. And so every time we take the elements of communion, we are reminded of how generous God has been to us and for us. And so if we form this habit of generosity in our lives, We are becoming more and more like Him. We are more perfectly reflecting the image of the one in in whose image we are made. And so I would invite you to receive the communion elements as well. Um, I would also invite you to to pray if you'd like, either at your seat or uh, at the altars. The altars are always open. We're also going to receive God's tithe and our offering. Um, If you would like to give this morning, you are welcome to do so. And I encourage you, if God is calling you, to respond uh, in obedience. And the band is going to come up and we're going to sing a song as well. And uh, if you know the song and you'd like to, to stand and sing, you're welcome to do that. This is our time to respond to how God is working in our lives as a result of the worship that we've been able to enjoy this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll respond to God together. God, we love you. Um, We love your word. And we just ask, Jesus, that um, you would help us to be a a generous people. Um, That we would be able to to read your word and to discern. And um, God, at the heart of this generosity, whether we are generous with our time or um, with our resources, God, I pray that... um, at the heart of all of that, that you would have our entire lives. For that's what the New Testament calls us to. God, your your word calls us to a a life fully given over to you, not a life that um, lives for you just on the weekends or or when it's socially appropriate. But God, you you call us to this this radical obedience to you, this peculiar, uh, these peculiar lives that live not according to the, the cultural customs of our world, but to... Uh, the kingdom of God and the establishment that you have made. And so, God, I pray that you would help us in all these things uh, to, to live more perfectly in your kingdom as citizens of the kingdom of God. So, God, help us as we do that. Would you be with us as we respond? I pray, God, that as we receive communion together and as we pray and sing, that your presence would be so close to us and so near to us, that your voice your still small voice would be heard in our lives and that you would help us, Lord, to open and to tune our ears to what you desire to say to us and to do in our lives. I pray, God, that as a result of of gathering here this morning, that, that many hearts would be changed. That we wouldn't just come here just to feel good about ourselves or to hear great music, but, God, that you would, through the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit, change our lives and change our hearts. That by receiving your grace, we would be compelled to give. 
So we love you, Lord. And we ask these things in the powerful, the risen, and generous name of Jesus Christ. Amen.